This is Africa Digest. Latest news this hour. Good afternoon. I am Onelin Tsinsi. The United Nations says there has been a pause in fighting in the Yemeni city of Hodeida, which has been attacked by government forces. It comes after two days of intense conflict in which almost 150 people died. The UN humanitarian coordinator in Geneva, Lisa Grande, reports. It seems that much of the airstrikes and the bombing and the strafing has stopped. We're very relieved by this because for the last few days we have seen some of the fiercest fighting of the entire war occurring in Hudeda. So the fact that there seems to be a pause now is very welcome indeed. Italy is hosting a Libya conference with the aim of to push forward a new United Nations plan to stabilize the troubled North African country. This afternoon, an initiative to hold elections next month failed. Last week, UN envoy to Libya, Hassan Salame, officially abandoned uh, in UN envoy to Libya, officially abandoned rather a Western plan to hold national elections on December 10 as a way out of a conflict that has raged the country since the toppling of Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. Instead, the United Nations, which has been trying to mediate for years, wants to hold first national conference to reconcile a country divided between hundreds of rival armed groups, tribes, towns and regions. Italy hopes the conference will help keep pressure on Libyan players to overcome the divisions. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees has said Rohingya families in Bangladesh should be allowed to go back to their former villages in Myanmar and assess conditions there before they decide whether or not to return. From Yangon, the BBC's Nick Beek. Myanmar says it's ready and willing to receive 150 Rohingya refugees every day starting from this Thursday and that it's now down to Bangladesh to send them. Myanmar insists all returns would be voluntary. But dozens of charities working in the Cox's Bazaar camps disagree and say many families are terrified at the prospect of being protected by the Burmese soldiers who are accused of murdering and raping their people last year. 
South Korea's Defense Ministry says that North Korea has removed over 600 landmines from the cruise village of Panmunjom, which straddles their shared borders. The measures are part of an agreement between the two countries to reduce the number of weapons and troops along the frontier. From Seoul, the BBC's Laura Baker. At the weekend, both Koreas removed troops and equipment from 11 guard posts along the border and they hope to tear some of them down in the next two months. There are meetings taking place today to try to look at other ways of reducing arms along what is known as the demilitarised zone. This progress is in stark contrast to North Korea's relationship with the United States. Last week's planned talks in New York were postponed and Pyongyang has threatened to restart its nuclear programme unless the US lifts strict economic sanctions. Lastly, suspected cholera cases have increased massively in northeast Nigeria, where Boko Haram violence has forced tens of thousands of people to seek refuge in crowded camps. The humanitarian group says 10,000 people have been affected by the fast-spreading cholera outbreak and 175 people have died in the northeast state of Adamawa, Bono and Yobe as early as November 2018. Nigeria has seen regular cholera outbreaks since Boko Haram took up arms against the government in 2009. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelintzinzi. This is Africa Digest. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us right here on Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. Remember, we're coming to you from the Auckland Park SABC studios right here from Johannesburg, South Africa. And yes, our frequency has changed. The English service frequency, we're now on 7260 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And remember, we're still online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Benjamin. Mushatam. I'm standing in for Spumelele today. I'll be driving the show with Usani Matebo. He'll be coming in a little bit later to give us our business news and Neto Chamani thereafter will come with his sports. Now let's briefly look at the top stories that we have for this hour. Opposition parties in the DRC pick a businessman and veteran parliamentarian to be a unity candidate for the presidential poll in December. The socioeconomic status of South Africa's black majority a leading reason behind the country sharp decline in adoption areas and later on in economics Kenya hit by a public transport crisis after new traffic rules came into force today finally but not least in our sports a little bit later we'll have a look at Australia's one-day batsmen under mounting pressure to keep their places under a lackluster series defeat to South Africa but let's look at our first story for this our opposition parties in the Democratic Republic of the Congo have picked a businessman and veteran parliamentarian to be a unity candidate for the presidential election in December. Martin Fayulu will lead a coalition against the ruling party candidate Emmanuel Ramazani Shadari. The decision, which came after marathon talks in Geneva, Switzerland, is a relief to many observers who are afraid that the country's numerous opposition parties would fail to overcome rivalry and feuds to field a single candidate. For more on what 
for Yulu's candidacy means for the opposition in the highly anticipated election. Channel Africa spoke to Evariste Kambanga, who is the spokesperson of the Congolese Unity in South Africa. Interesting time indeed, as you just mentioned. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the situation in DRC has been tense since the beginning of this year. From our perspective and, uh, and the point of view, uh, we strongly feel that uh, Martin Fayulu has been a weak candidate who's going to face a very, very incumbent political party uh, who, that is leading the country now. The opposition parties haven't done really uh, a critical examination leading to the choice of Fayubu. Now, let's talk about uh, uh, Fayubu at this time. We know that he's the leader of the Engagement for Citizenship and Development Party. What else can you tell us about him? Fayibu is is well known as a businessman. He was he spent most of his time in his business in business. He mostly run a property development company and more with a more focus on hotel management, etc. And he got in engaged in politics uh, only in 2000 when he formed the political party. And we recently uh, saw him playing a critical role in the parliament, etc. When he was elected as a national deputy. Uh, but that is that said, he he doesn't his political party has not been is, is not a, does not have a historical uh, background uh, like uh, the other political main other political parties. And uh, his political party, we usually say it's a, is, a, is a social media political party, which is known only by people who use the social media and other platforms. But the people on the ground don't really know this guy. And that's going to be a big challenge in terms of uh, getting this guy, uh, you know, uh, making a, a, a campaign and, and getting this guy known to people. And that's a, that's a huge blow to the, the, the opposition party. And we can also foresee that the opposition party will not will not unite around this guy. And we already have some rumors that the main political parties are currently looking at how to perhaps uh, go to presidential elections without, you know, this guy. There are a lot of concerns around the DRC. We know that the country's never really seen a peaceful transition of power since it gained independence in the 1960s. With this election that is um, coming up, are we likely to see some issues um, being triggered uh, considering that they're quite crucial for the future of the DRC? Do you believe that maybe these polls will bring that long-lasting stability? We strongly don't believe in, in opposition because, number one, the opposition hasn't chosen the right candidate to face Joseph Kabila's choice, which is Ramazani Shadahi. And number two... The concerns about the voting machine have not been dealt with properly. Uh, the voting machines, as you know, are still maintained, and will uh, we can conclusively say the elections have been rigged already. And uh, some people already believed that Shadaki, who is the Kabila's choice, will already be a president of DRC as soon 2019. The good news, however, is the political, the peaceful transition uh, is, a, is something we should all appreciate and applaud. And since that is the first uh, critical and, and peaceful transition since 
to since 1960s. We can, yeah, 1960s. Now let's look at at, at this joint uh, unity with the opposition parties. Now this often happens across the continent, and usually what seems to happen, you know, a couple of months later is that the union, so to speak, does integrate with the divisions emerging, especially if the joint candidate wins the election. Is there a possibility, in your view, um, uh, or do you think that if Martin Fiuli emerges victorious, that the opposition parties could be more united? There is ab- there absolutely no way that Martin Fayulu will unite the opposition party. That is a, mm. that is a joke. Mm. That is a joke. We have known the the heavyweight or heavyweight politicians like uh, Etienne Tshisekedi who died in February this year, and he he tried. Those are people that we could count uh, on in terms of uniting the, the opposition, uh, etc. But this guy is not known by many people. He, 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 he doesn't have a political history in our country. And we don't, I personally knew the guy only recently uh, through, you know, social, social platforms and, and community uh, engagement, etc. So that, that's the history of, the, of, of Martin Fayulu. He's not a guy who's going to unite the political, the opposition in DRC. Let's be honest about that. That's Avarista Kambanga, who is the spokesperson of the Congolese community in South Africa, talking to Zikona Miso. That's a big story there, especially leading up to the DRC elections. We'll see what happens, and I'm sure Channel Africa will keep you in the loop of that particular political situation in the DRC. Moving on into our next story. The world came together yesterday in commemorating 100 years of the end of the World War One in yesterday, the ex-servicemen League of Zambia and other concerned citizens came together to remind the world that Africa's contribution to the war should not be forgotten. Hilda Akakelwa reports. As the world commemorated the end of the First World War yesterday, some stories pointing to the significant role Africa played in the war are being told. Perhaps one of the most significant is the fact that the war continued in northern Rhodesia, today Zambia, for the next 10 days after it ended elsewhere in the world. This fact is a source of a huge celebration set for the 25th of this month. At the commemoration in Livingston yesterday, retired Captain Peter Jones said it is important for the world to remember the role the continent played as we honor the fallen heroes who laid their lives for global peace. Whilst the guns fell silent in Europe on the 11th of November, they they continued in Africa until the 13th, when General Bonetto Borbeck's troops were about to cross the Chambeshi River in northern Rhodesia, and the last shot of the war was fired by a German Askari north of that river. The war in Africa lasted two weeks and one hour after the guns had fallen silent in Europe. We will remember the servicemen buried at Kensenchi in Indola, not only from, from people, from, from units in this country, but also from the British South Africa Police, the Royal Navy, South African Forces and Belgium. We will remember people like Private Beatty from the Northern Rhodesia Rifles, who was buried in a grave at Chinsali in 1916 unmarked officially, a piece of granite 
acting as his headstone because somebody will not look upon him as a war casualty. We will remember those affected by war, like Captain Evans from Abercorn, now in Bala, who after the war suffered from the deep post-traumatic stress disorder, and it was the cause of him being stripped of his bravery awards in 1923. Continuing on the role Africa and its people played, King Liwanik of the Lozi people of the then Barossaland in northern Rhodesia contributed a 2,500 army led by his own son, Mwanawina, to go and fight alongside Allied forces. Historian Musiari Kenasirele says in addition to that, the king also contributed funds for use during the war. In 1902, King Lewanika was invited to visit England and uh, while he's in England uh, he was taken to a speed speedhead where the military hardware uh, sometimes displayed. So he was very amazed and he asked the Queen why such weapons were arranged in such a manner then he was told by uh, the king that uh, actually England was uh, getting ready for an attack. King Lewanik actually promised his friends, the English, that uh, should England uh, join war or should England be attacked by any country, uh, especially those the colonial masters which had a lot of vested interest on the African continent, he was going to join the war. And uh, he was uh, told that, uh, actually jokingly, that um, uh, there was no way the King Lewanika could uh, join the war because uh, the Africans didn't have uh, weapons which were advanced at the time. Um, when he came back, actually, the royal administration in England uh, wrote a letter that actually they wanted the assistance uh, in form of uh, human personnel and uh, they requested for 2,000. He decided to provide 2,500 personnel. Uh, started walking, going to Serenje, or marching, going to Serenje. And they were being uh, commanded by Samuel Awina Lewanika, who was a sergeant. Samuel Awina Lewanika was the son to Rubosi uh, King Lewanika, the, the first. He contributed, very documented that he contributed the money uh, which was uh, 1,400 pounds towards the, the same the same war. And a member of the ex-servicemen's league in Zambia, retired warrant officer Patrick Namakando accredits the First and Second World Wars for world order and the prevailing global peace. He says Zambia should, if he says Zambia should be even more proud as the country where the last gun was fired to end the First World War. The peace that we enjoy today in the world is as a result of the First and Second World Wars. And uh, I think in Zambia in particular is something we should celebrate highly because the entire world is now focusing on Zambia. Now that we are reaching 100 years of this freedom of the First World War, from the First World War, that the, first, the last gun was fired here in Zambia and Mbala is something that we should all celebrate about, we should be proud of, that Zambia ended up the First World War. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingston in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. 
across the globe. Every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. This is Africa Digest. Hey, it's 20 minutes past 5 o'clock Central African time. You're still tuned into the channel uh, Africa where you are getting the African perspective. Remember, we're now on the frequency 7260 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Do spread the word on that on DSTV. We're on channel 802 on the audio bouquet. But you can also listen to us on our website on www.channelafrica.co.za My name is Benjamin Mushatama standing in for Spumele well, let's quickly move on and get our next story for this hour. The socioeconomic status of South Africa's black majority is one of the reasons behind the country's sharp decline in adoption rates. The country's adoption crisis was on the spotlight on the recent occasion of World Adoption Day, commemorated annually on the 9th of November. Adoption remains one of the most viable care options for some abandoned and orphaned children both locally and abroad. Duduzilas Kosana is a child protection program manager at Save the Children South Africa. The demand has gone up for adoption. And uh, as the demand is going up, we are not getting prospective parents increasing as well. And uh, there are a number of reasons to this or issues contributing to this. If you look at South Africa as a country, blacks are in majority, like 80% of the population is black. And unfortunately, in our black, I would say black culture, I don't want to say African because I'm not sure if it's the same uh, Mm. with the other African Mm. countries. But within South Africa, we still are faced with a lot of socioeconomic ills that uh, you know, one black family will have a multi number of extended family members they are responsible for. So instead of us like as maybe a few of us becoming economically okay or free, but we have other responsibilities that we want to take care of. So you are in a way adopting your other family members. Another reason is cultural needs that are like um, associated with adoption. So culturally, we are still afraid, blacks are still afraid of venturing into adoption. And also there's a fear of um, like biological parents of the children coming back and claiming those children. You know, even with the few families that are adopting, they are still unsure of when to 
make the child aware that the child is adopted, the fear of the neighbors telling the child that is adopted and the child may be turning around and all of whatever they've invested getting lost. Now, you have touched on the fact that although most black people are not yet open to the idea of adoption because of socioeconomic circumstances and cultural reasons, um, they do take on children of other relatives and help raising them and so on. So they do have the spirit of adoption right, helping children in need. How different is this from the adoption we are talking about, which is the legal process? It's totally something different because adoption comes with responsibility and um, and, and rights. So if I am looking after my late sister's children without the court order, I don't have rights over that child. I may have like somehow responsibility and it's self-imposed kind of responsibility. So there's an element of I can do this when I want to. When I don't want to, I can throw the child out and, and let other, maybe other family members continue with that responsibility. So it's not formalized adoption. Adoption has to be like permanent. It's a permanent care provided to a child by that particular person or person. Let's talk about the process and who qualifies as an adoptable child. Any child can be adopted, but then it has to be in the best interest of that particular child. So a child, an abandoned child, who the mother maybe have just left without care of the responsible person, that child would be available for adoption. There are certain parents who would uh, be pregnant and then they consent to adoption, so they sign their rights away as parents to adoption. So that type of adoption, there's a closed uh, consent adoption and there's a, a, an open consent adoption. Normally the open one takes longer because the parent will be given a period of 60 days cooling off period after the child has been born to establish if maybe they are still willing to change their mind. The closed one, immediately after giving birth, the mother doesn't even look at the child, the child is taken away and that parent does not have any rights over the child anymore. Uh, they cannot even look for the child unless the child, maybe when they grow older, they can look uh, for their mother or, or parents. And in terms of a person or persons intending to adopt a child, what makes them eligible to adopt? So any um, a person is eligible also for adoption. It can be a joint adoption of a, a husband and a wife. It can also be, you know, these days we have different uh, types of families. So according to our Children's Act, it has opened it uh, widely to say any partners who are living in a permanent kind of domestic life, underline permanent. So they may not be married, but as long as they have a stable, a permanent living arrangement. So they are eligible for adopting as well. And also, any person, uh, irrespective of their economic status, irrespective of their physical ability, as long as you have an interest in adopting, you can adopt. That's the voice of Duduzile Skosana, Child Protection Program Manager at Save the Children South Africa. On the line, they're speaking to Channel Africa's Jane Rabotata. Moving from the humanitarian front to health news, antibiotics and other antimicrobials are commonly used in food and agriculture production. 
but their overuse and misuse is resulting in antimicrobial resistance, or AMR. Christine Shazniak, a communications expert in behavioral change and AMR at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, also known as FAO, believes farmers have a critical role to play in stemming the spread of antimicrobial resistance. She elaborates on why it is a problem that we should all care about this. Antimicrobial resistance is just a fancy way of describing the fact that germs that cause infections, they develop this ability to tolerate these treatments that we use against them. And this is a problem because we need to be able to cure infections. And and is this problem across the globe or is it only in specific regions or countries? This is definitely a global problem and this is why we all have to care and this is why we all have a role to play in the solution. So just looking globally, right now, one person dies every minute from a resistant infection and this number is only going to go up. But in terms of which areas of the world are most affected, unfortunately, low and middle income countries, they are suffering from an incredibly high burden of infectious disease, which also means that they're going to bear the brunt of the antimicrobial resistance or superbugs crisis. In terms of food production specifically, what's contributing to AMR and the superbug crisis? Everyone who misuses antimicrobials is contributing to this crisis. So doctors who are prescribing antibiotics to their patients when they don't really need them, people who are demanding them, and in farming, you know, there's this challenge of losing animals to disease, and this really affects farmer livelihoods. And so to try and be extra cautious, farmers are often just using antibiotics for their animals day in, day out in their animal feed or in their water to try and prevent infections before they start. But that is a very irresponsible use that we need to work together to change. How do we tackle this growing problem? You know, some people, they like to call for a really extreme reaction and they'll say, well, let's just ban antibiotic use entirely for animals. That would be a disaster for public health because there are these diseases we call zoonoses, essentially means that they can be spread between people and animals. And so if you just stopped treating animals, that would be a huge problem for animal health and welfare and for food production, but you'd also be threatening public health. That is the voice there of Christine Shetniak, who is a communications expert, behavioral change and antimicrobial resistance at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. She was speaking there uh, to uh, Charlotta Lomas of FAO Radio. Well, that takes us exactly to 7.30, 17.30 rather, Central African time. I already see Onella standing by. She's going to give us our headlines. At least 11 boys have died in Uganda boarding school fire. The United Nations says there has been a pause in fighting in the Yemeni city of Hodeida, which has been attacked by government forces. And the World Health Organization has reached out to 16 African nations asking for support for preparedness and response to a listeriosis outbreak that has started in South Africa. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinzi. This is Africa Digest.
Well, thanks, Tonele, for those headlines. Just a reminder, in around 15 minutes or so, we'll get our economics update from uh, Wisani Matebula. Today, he'll be looking at Kenya being hit by a public transport crisis after new traffic rules came into force today. And later in our sports, Neto Chimani will be coming in with our sports. Look at it, looking at the issue of Australia's one-day batsmen under mounting pressure to keep their places after a Luxor series defeat to South Africa. Africa. Well, let's move on to our next story. The South African National Editors Forum, Osanif, says it's deeply disturbed by the Finance Minister Ditombowene's social media post threatening war against editors. Without context, Mboweni tweeted, Wars start in different ways, spears and shields, gunpowder, bullets, and now through media, printed and electronic, and then social media. Well, the essay editors must be editors. If needs be, we'll be forced into the fight, war. In a second tweet, Mboweni continues to then state that he's a product of the warrior commanders of the mighty Zulu army and states that there will be collateral damage. The media fraternity has responded with shock and disappointment at these comments. To talk to us more on this, we joined on the line by the chairperson for Media Freedom Subcommittee at SENEF, Mary Papaya. Mary, thank you for giving us your time. Thank you so much for having us here. Very bizarre tweets, don't you think, and very sporadic. What are your thoughts around these particular tweets and why is there outrage from the media as a response? Well, we're clearly disturbed by the comments. I mean, threatening war against editors. Um, That is very unacceptable and it's dangerous, no matter what the circumstances. As we said in our statement, there are options that the minister could have taken through. And if he had a complaint around a certain journalist or an editor, he was welcome to go and engage with the different media houses. And if he felt aggrieved, then alternatively he could have pursued, if it was a radio station, gone to the BCCSA. If it was a press council, then uh, and, and, and being print, he could have gone then to the press council. But that being said, following our statement, we are pleased and we welcome this, that there will be an engagement with the Treasury. Our executive members and members of MANCO will be attending a meeting with uh, Treasury tomorrow at 12. Mary, do you know what context he was referring to with these particular tweets? What was the finance minister angry about? At this stage, we've not received anything that confirms the exact details. Um, There were sporadic feedback that might have included a journalist writing a story about him without proper, following proper procedures. Um, Then someone said there might have been um, particular editors that he was angry with. Be that as it may, we felt that it was necessary to engage, which is why we're happy to have the engagement. We welcome robust engagement on all issues. Senef has made it very clear that if there are problems, the root of engagement Mm -hmm. is something that we welcome. We're happy to sit down, have a robust discussion, because this is all part of of the democratic process that entrenches media freedom. And we've constantly said this. In terms of self-introspection, where journalists have made mistakes or editors have transgressed, we've made it very clear that there is room for improvement. You would have noticed that at the end of what transpired with the Sunday Times, Mm. we put out a statement 
we met with the management of the Sunday Times, hmm. with the editor, and we're now calling for a commission to be set up to investigate all sorts of transgressions surrounding these and other matters. And that's how Sanif receives it. So from this perspective, we're really quite shocked and disturbed by what came out. We're hoping that tomorrow's engagement will give us further information and more clarity on exactly what the issues are at stake here. Mary, someone else could say that maybe Sanic is over-exaggerating. Maybe this tweet was just symbolic or something like, maybe it was a, a little joke from uh, the finance minister, Tito Mboweni. Why did you come out so strongly uh, with this particular tweet? Because uh, those uh, assumptions could be made. I think it's very wrong to say that we've come out strongly against this particular tweet. Um, if you notice, over the last few weeks, certainly the last few months, certainly the history of SANAF as a, as, a, as a mouthpiece for media freedom, we've been consistent in our approach. When it comes to the safety of journalists, when it comes to the safety and the protection of the rights of the media, we've consistently gone out and done the exact, exact same response. I don't see that this, that this particular response being different. I see it as, be, as in keeping with our processes, our procedures, and our standard operating um, procedures mm. when it comes to the safety of journalists. Let's unpack what was said. You yourself unquoted everything that was out in the tweet. Mm. To the member of the public, what kind of message is being sent out? Sure. Now remember, we're in a very precarious situation at the moment. The public trust and for media is in a very critical stage. Hmm. If we perpetuate these kinds of comments without looking at ways of engaging appropriately and 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 minds, well, I think we're losing you there, Mary, but I think we kind of understand the position there of uh, Sinef uh, to uh, those tweets by South Africa's finance minister. Uh, well, Mary, I don't know if you can hear me, but thank you for giving us your time. Hi, I, I can hear you now. Thanks so much for listening. Sure, fantastic. Well, that is Mary Papaya, the chairperson for Media Freedom Subcommittee at the South African National Editors Forum. And uh, that takes us uh, to 17.38 Central African time. Let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll continue. Remember, coming up is still our business news, and we still have our sports coming up this hour. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. 
Yes, you're listening to Channel Africa on our various platforms on shortwave. We're on the frequency 7260 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And you can stream us live on www.channelafrica.co.za. There are two links there on our website. I think you can get us on our second link there as we have uh, our other uh, colleagues uh, broadcasting on the other channel if you want to check out the English channel. Remember, we also uh, can uh, actually check it out later on our website. You can also go to our multimedia section where we'll be podcasting this particular program. Now, next story, Kenya has been hit by a public transport crisis after new traffic rules came into force today. The rules have been introduced after road accidents claimed lives of nearly 3,000 people since January this year. James Shimanyula reports. Public transport has been paralyzed in Kenya after the Nairobi authorities introduced stringent traffic rules and regulations. The rules and regulations came into force today, Monday, to force public transport operators to observe them. For a long time, lives continue to be lost on Kenyan roads due to recklessness by public transport drivers. Owners of public transport vehicles pleaded with the government to give them more time to prepare for the new rules and regulations, but the authorities have stuck to their guns, saying... The rules must be complied now and in the days to come. Since morning, police have arrested more than 200 drivers of public vehicles for flouting traffic rules. Police say they will illegally deal ruthlessly with the drivers until they restore sanity on Kenyan roads. Over the years, public transport drivers disobey traffic rules and regulations. They mistreat passengers. Their vehicles have no speed governors. No seat belts have been fixed in their vehicles. Time and again, fares have been inflated. This is how Timothy Kelly, a public transport expert, described impunity perpetrated by drivers on Kenyan roads, the very impunity that compelled the government to introduce stringent traffic rules and regulations. It's a recipe for chaos. And I think uh, as AA Kenya, as champions of road safety, we, we support this agenda, that there should be order on our roads. To the family that lost a beloved one on a road accident, and we've had very bad and grisly accidents in the last couple of months, but uh, for that family that lost a dear one, that lost a life, source of livelihood because the breadwinner died because they were not in a safety belt and there was chaos on the road, this conversation is totally different. And, and we do support that there should be order on the road. All the way from the learner driver training, all the way through to the road, customer service, taking care of one another, minding each other on the road, there should be order on the road. If we had enough order on the road, even some of the traffic jam you see would not be existence. Restoration of sanity on Kenyan roads, public transport expert Timothy Kelly says, is strictly aimed at preventing more travelers from dying through road accidents. No better time for us to get order on our roads than now. Because what are we expecting? If we don't do this now, it means that we are going to be waking up every other day to news of vehicles rolling and everybody on the road. Uh, being exposed to this kind of danger. And at times, it's not just the person causing the chaos that is in danger. You could be driving your vehicle, observing all the traffic rules, but somebody else, because of their disorder, they come to your lane and they hit you, and you could be a victim. 
The question that arises is why tough trafficking rules have been introduced now in Kenya after nearly 3,000 people lost their lives through road accidents since January this year. To answer the question is official Kenya police spokesman Charles Sowino. Why now? Because all of us, all the machinery of the state is in agreement that this must be stopped. You cannot stop this as an individual. Even the inspector general at his level, without the support of everyone in the country, he can do it. The inspector general as an individual cannot do this. It's not a matter of now. It's a matter of collective responsibility. Whatever we do requires collective responsibility and goodwill from all of us. These rules must be complied. Briefly reflecting on the measures that police have taken to ensure that drivers fully comply with the new traffic rules, Owino means to know words when he said... We not only have the policemen that you see on the road, we have different teams that are monitoring what the police on the road are doing. And at the end of the day, if there will be any policeman who will attempt to pick a bribe or do something, you will see us arresting him and taking him to court. Today, there is no shortcut about it. So we've put in a number of people. We have so many institutions that watch on the police. We have criminal investigations department, which is part of police. And uh, always the police watch the police in a system where people have become so corrupt, like in our system, our country, where people believe in corruption. We are not only having traffic police officers on the road and other senior officers on the road, because everyone has come out, including the regional bosses, because they rarely come out on the road. But they are out to supervise on this until that level that we will accept that this is the right thing for us to do until it becomes normal. So we have a number of officers on the road. Apart from traffic police officers expected to check, there will also be others who will check impromptu, not in civilian, but also in uniform. Kenyans who woke up shortly before dawn to either board public transport vehicles that complied with the new traffic rules or simply walk to their workplaces share with us what they have gone through and also sum up the current situation. There's a traffic crisis. I just have a few a few service providers at the moment. So it's a, it's a crisis and you can see there are lots of passengers stranded at the bus stop. I woke up at 4.30. If uh, I had taken chances there, that would have meant coming to work late. So to beat the, the crisis, one has to wake up very early at this, at this point. I totally support the crackdown because this uh, uh, ultimately boils down to our safety. The moment you have a safety bell, this is for your safety, for the safety of every Kenyan. I've been here for three hours. I came here, I woke up at four o'clock very early in the morning so that I can catch up on my to Nairobi. But when I, came, when I came to the stage, you can see the problems are here. No vehicles, you cannot find anything, so we are stranded. I totally support this crackdown because it's for our own safety. We've seen the accidents that have been happening all over. So we are actually congratulating the government for this step. So we are saying these measures should continue and this crackdown should go on. As the crackdown goes on, as that Kenyan says, this is James Shimanyula reporting for Channel Africa. Well, that story by James takes us to 1746 Central African time. You still tuned into Africa Digest with me, Benjamin Mshatama, standing in for Spumilele Zondi. Let's quickly move on and get our business news from Wisani Matebula.
Thanks, Benjamin. We start off in Sudan, where many cash machines in the Sudanese capital have run out of banknotes as government scrambles to prevent economic collapse with a sharp devaluation and emergency austerity measures. Rising demand for cash due to inflation, lack of trust in the banking system, and the central bank's policy of restricting the money supply to protect the Sudanese pound have all contributed to a liquidity crunch that has worsened in the past 10 days pending new banknote deliveries. The banknote shortage comes a month after authorities let the value of the pound slide from £29 per US dollar to £47.5. And Kenya has been hit by a public uh, transport crisis after new traffic rules came into force today. The rules have been introduced after road accidents claimed lives of nearly 3,000 people since January this year. James Simanula has more. Public transport has been paralyzed in Kenya after the Nairobi authorities introduced stringent traffic rules and regulations. The rules and regulations came into force today, Monday, to force public transport operators to observe them. For a long time, lives continue to be lost on Kenyan roads, due to recklessness by public transport drivers. Owners of public transport vehicles pleaded with the government to give them more time to prepare for the new rules and regulations, but the authorities have stuck to their guns, saying the rules must be complied now and in the days to come. Nigeria's Diamond Bank says it's not in measure or acquisition talks are denying media speculation that it was in discussions to be bought by rival Access Bank. Shares in Diamond Bank fell 9.38% following the statement. Diamond Bank has been managing its capital since 2016 to ensure it stays within the minimum regulatory ratio. On Friday, the bank said no investor had come forward to inject cash into the company and it's reviewing all options after four of its directors resigned last month. And South Africa's public ombuds, uh, Busisi Wemkwebane, says she's looking forward to Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Godan's appearance before her on Wednesday. Mkwebane was reacting to a weekend media statement attributed to an attorney who says he acts on behalf of Godan. Godan's appearance relates to allegations that he irregularly approved Ivan Pillay's retirement, bought off his pension balance, and later allowed him to be re-employed by the South African Revenue Service. In 2010, Public Protector spokesperson Obase Khalwe explains. Apologies for that sound and uh, vernacular language, but we're moving on. Uh, to- uh, Tohosan has called off at a planned sale of seven casino and hotel businesses to hospitality property fund due to a lack of uh, support from shareholders. Hospitality said in July it will acquire the businesses in a shares and subscription agreement worth uh, 1.72 billion US dollars. Toho said at the time the sale was part of plans to split into three separately listed divisions focused on property, gaming and hotel management. Financial indicators are uh, the dollar 1046 Botswana Pula 1178 Zambian also at 77 pence to the British pound and 88 cents against the euro. Commodities gold it's trading at $1,210, platinum $851 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $71.05 per barrel. That's your economics news right now.
Hey, let's quickly move on and get our sports from Neto Chimani. Good evening, sport fans. With your latest Channel Africa sports news at this hour, I'm Neto NETO Chamani. Starting off with soccer news. Bafana Bafana will play Paraguay in the Nelson Mandela Challenge Centenary Celebrations at Moses Mabida Stadium in KwaZulu-Natal province on Tuesday, November the 20th. The match comes three days after South Africa's Africa Cup of Nations AFCON qualifier match against Nigeria at the FNB Stadium on November the 17th. SAFA President Dr. Denny Jordan, who made the announcement in Johannesburg on Monday, said they could not have come up with a better opponent to mark 100 years of South Africa's icon and father of the nation, Nelson Kholitlatla Mandela. On to athletics news. South African sprinting king Agani Simbine has hailed newly crowned South African sports star of the year, Kesta Semenya, for her resilience on and off the track. Speaking after Semenya made a clean sweep at the SA Sports Awards in Bloemfontein last night, winning the People's Choice Sports Star of the Year and the Sportswoman of the Year Award, Simbine says the 800 meters world and Olympic champion deserves all the accolades coming her way. Yeah, Kasta deserves everything she gets. You know, she works hard. She, 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 she gets a lot of backlash, but she deserves everything she gets. And, 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 and I wish her more. I wish her more accolades. I wish her more achievements and more, more success because she deserves it and she achieves what she, she deserves what she achieves. Simbine was also acknowledged by the Minister of Sport as he received the Minister's Excellence Award for his good showing in 2018. Simbine won the Commonwealth Games 100 meters title and also the gold medal at the African Championships in Nigeria. The athlete was excited by this recognition. Getting the acknowledgement from the Minister and winning this award is really encouraging for me. Um, it, it, it shows that uh, my work is, is, is not going un untouched or unnoticed and I really appreciate the fact that the minister notices what I'm doing and, 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 and he awarded me this so it's really great and I'm happy about it. It really, this really talks to what I've been doing this year, you know, um, I've really, I've really came out here to, 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 to be the best I can be and, 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 and this year I came out to win gold medals and that's what I wanted to do so um, it's really great to have this opportunity to be here and, and get this award. Year 2019 is going to be a very busy program for Simbine and most SA top athletes as they will be focusing on the IAAF World Champions in Doha, Qatar. He's focusing on getting another podium finish this year. For me, going into 2018, this for me, this motivates me, you know, um, it's, it's, it's acknowledgement and it's really great to know that my work is being acknowledged, but going into next year, I'm more motivated. I'm Spurred on, I'm going to be spurred on to go out there and represent the country well, represent the minister well, and 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 you know just go there, be on the on the podium, and 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 come back home with the medals. On to cricket news. Australia's one-day batsmen are under mounting pressure to keep their places after a lackluster series defeat to South Africa. Captain Aaron Finch warned today with a potential shake-up looming. While the hosts won in Adelaide to snap a seven-game losing streak, they crashed heavily in Perth and lost again in Hobart by 40 runs. 
None of the key batsmen performed consistently, although number three, Sean Marsh, hit a fighting 106 in the decider yesterday. Finchie admitted they are all under pressure when they lose, no doubt about that, and hinted at changes ahead of their next series against India, ranked two in the world in January. And finally in golf news. Charles Sotzel has dropped to his lowest world ranking in 10 years following the NetBank Golf Challenge at Sun City this past weekend. Schwarzel, who was ranked 74th leading into the event at Sun City, dropped to 80th after his T41 finish at Africa's Major. The 34-year-old is currently the fifth highest ranked South African golfer, behind Louis Ostezen on 37, Brendan Grace on 46, Sean Norris 72 and Dylan Fritelli 79. The 2011 Masters champion is now at his lowest ranking since 2008 before he won the Madrid Masters in October of that year. Schwarzel's 2018 season has seen him only make top 410 finishes in 23 events, including a T2 at the Players' Championship. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Etio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. Well, it's time for us to wrap up our program today. Well, that's it from me, Benjamin Mushatama. Now, next program at 1900 hours Central African time, we'll have Leander Maumeh standing in uh, for Spumelele. So do join him uh, for Africa Digest, which is the second installment of the program. Well, let's recap our top stories this hour. Position parties in the DR Congo a businessman and a veteran parliamentarian to be a unity candidate in the presidential poll for December. Now, the socio-economic status of South Africa's black majority, a leading reason behind the country's sharp decline in adoption rates. Well, that's how I wrap up this hour. From me, myself, Benjamin Moshata, my producer, Leander Maume, and uh, our team right here on Africa Digest. We thank you for listening. For comments on the show, remember, you can email us at info at channelafrica.co.za. And we want to hear what you think of our programming. Another way to get a hold of us is via our WhatsApp. Our WhatsApp number is plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven. Or you can become part of the Channel Africa family on Twitter. Go to our handle at Channel Africa. Well, to end the program, we've got a great song, a bit upbeat, but it is very cool. Right here from South Africa, we've got Sun L Musician featuring Simi. This one is Ntabe Zegude. Until next time, God bless.